Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. After dealing last week with suffering as a form of spiritual warfare, spiritual welfare, I want us to deal today with the battlefield of discouragement. Satan often uses discouragement in spiritual battle, and in the process, he reveals his nature, and God reveals his nature. 1 Kings 19. And Ahab, verse 1, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also, how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, and for all of those of us who love food, isn't this a good message? Arise and eat. Who said eating is not good for discouragement? This is biblical. Get yourself a pepperoni pizza and you'll feel better. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. No pepperoni on the cake, however. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back and the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God, where God revealed himself to Moses in the great revelation of the commandments. In 1994, Thurman Thomas sat on the buffalo bench following his team's fourth straight Super Bowl loss. Head in his hands, discouragement all over him, three fumbles had helped to seal the fate of the Buffalo Bills that day, and Thurman Thomas was down on himself, discouraged. His courage to go on had been taken from him due to his response to the circumstances. But while his head was buried in his hands, he noticed that there were two Dallas Cowboy football shoes standing in front of him. 
And then he noticed something else. He noticed as he raised his eyes and noticed the legs in the uniform that there was a young, little young girl in the arms of Emmett Smith, the great running back for the Dallas Cowboys who had been victorious that day. And Emmett looked at Thurman Thomas sitting on that bench and said, Honey, to his little goddaughter, he said, I want you to meet the greatest running back in the NFL, Mr. Thurman Thomas. And suddenly, suddenly the discouragement began to fade as Emmett Smith himself, one of the greatest backs, stood there acknowledging that the man who had fumbled three times and perhaps lost the game and the fourth straight Super Bowl for the Bills was now being acknowledged by a peer as the greatest running back in the NFL. And suddenly, the discouragement was gone. Now, ladies and gentlemen, today, in the story of this man, this prophet Elijah, I want us to consider some things that he learned on his way to the desert. Indeed, I want us to consider some things I've learned on my way to the desert. Have you ever been to the desert? How many of you have been to the desert? How many of you are in the desert this week? And here's Elijah's story. We know this is spiritual warfare because go back to chapter 18 and look at verse 24. Then you call on the name of your gods, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, and I will call on the name of the Lord. Seldom in the history of the Bible has there been such direct confrontation between false gods and the God of Israel and Judah. And we know it's spiritual warfare because Elijah put the name and the honor and the power of God directly on the line. And he said in verse 24, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. This is spiritual warfare. I want you to know that one of the tools that Satan loves to use in the life of the believer is the tool of discouragement. He wants to discourage you. He is committed to discouraging you. And in the experiences of Elijah the prophet, he learns some lessons. For Satan reveals himself in circumstances and on the way to the desert, notice the four things that Satan revealed about himself. And they're always true. When God unveils himself, it tells about his character. When Satan unveils himself, it speaks of his character. And in four ways, he reveals his character to Elijah. Satan does. Now, look at the first way. The first way he reveals is in verse 1. Satan reveals himself always through the distortion of truth. The distortion of truth. For Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. 
Notice Ahab, the wicked king of the northern kingdom, Israel, attributed everything that had happened. The drought, the rain, the slaying of the prophets, he attributed to Elijah, and he missed the point that God was in fact bringing judgment. Satan always distorts truth. Whenever truth gets turned around, whenever truth seems real and reality seems false, you know that Satan is at work in that circumstance. Jesus said of Satan that he is a liar and the what class? Do you remember what he said? He is the what of liars? He is the father of all liars. And God is never in the distortion of truth. Satan is always in the distortion of truth. And where you see truth distorted, whether it's a rumor, whether it's a false statement about somebody, whether it's slanderous gossip, Satan is always involved. That is a revelation of the enemy of God in distorting the truth about who you are, what you've done, who God is, what God has done. That is a revelation of Satan, the distortion of truth. He is a liar and the father of liars. Wherever truth is distorted, remember God is never in that. That is always a revelation of the presence and the power and the work of Satan. Secondly, look at verse 2, the dissemination of fear. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Jezebel gives out a threat. Jezebel. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Have you ever been married? No, no, I shouldn't ask that question. Have you ever been married to Jezebel? Now, don't take Jezebel lightly. Jezebel is of a, a royal line. Jezebel is a true queen. A lot of people in Israel were afraid of Jezebel. And if you had known, Jeze known Jezebel, you probably would have been afraid of Jezebel too. And she said, I'm going to get you, Elijah. As the gods do more to me, this and more also, if I don't have your life by tomorrow about this time. Now, the thing about Jezebel is that this is, this is designed not just to get at, at Elijah. Her threat is designed to discredit Almighty God and everything that God had done through Elijah. Remember, spiritual warfare is Satan attacking God through you, through me. You see, if she had really wanted to kill Elijah, I wouldn't have announced to Elijah I was going to kill him. If you wanted to kill Elijah, would you have done that? I'd have gone, she could have gone right for him. She could have surreptitiously had him dead by noon. You see, the whole thing was a plot planned in order to discredit Almighty God and show Elijah, who is right now seen as this man of great faith, who called down fire from heaven, if she could just prove him to be false and discredit him and let fear overtake him. And that's exactly what happened. So the dissemination of fear is one of Satan's great tools. When you run from something and there's no reason to run, Fear, emotions are our responses to what we think is reality. And when she threatened Elijah and he got his eyes off God and was worried about Jezebel, she had scared him into the desert. And what does Elijah do? He takes off running. When, verse 3, when he saw that, 
When he heard what Jezebel said, he ran. Listen, if you're going to stand for God, there are times when Satan will distort the truth and disseminate fear. And God wants to know, are you going to stand? Are you going to stay right there? Are you going to stay right there? But Elijah ran. I know we find it hard to believe. How could a man of such intense faith now run? Of course, I'm scared to death of women too sometimes. Did you ever have the fury of a woman's wrath on you? I mean, you want to you run to the desert also, amen? How many of you have run from a woman at some time or another? And by the way, if you've ever been connected with Jezebel, you probably ran from her sooner or later. Watch out for Jezebel. It was a bluff, of course, but she created a false reality. She said, I'm going to get you. Well, she could have gotten him. The point was she made him afraid. She discredited God. The man of faith is now a man of doubt. This great prophet is now a man of fear. This great man who stood against 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, now runs under the threat of one woman with her face painted. Maybe it was the paint. Maybe it was war paint. <laughs> I don't know. But now notice verse 3. The third way Satan reveals himself on the way to the desert is not only the distortion of truth, the dissemination of fear, but there's the distraction of issues. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. She had convinced him his life was the issue and not God's life, not God's honor, not God's majesty. She had convinced Elijah that his life was the issue. Don't run from the devil. You are not the issue. God is the issue. One thing I tell pastors when they're in distress in their churches, power struggles in churches love to make the preacher the issue and the preacher is not the issue. The power groups are the issue. And the devil causes preachers to run from things in fear of Jezebel because the devil distracts from the issue. The average marriage breakup is broken up because somebody gets their eyes off what the real issue is. Did you know that? It's one of the devil's great tricks to make you feel like you alone are the issue. The alcoholic wants to make his wife the issue. The man who's the wife abuser wants to make his wife the issue. If you lived with a woman like this, you'd beat her too, he says. See, it always is that way. The man who's in financial trouble doesn't blame it on the fact that he's run up $10,000 on a credit card with a limit of five and 18% interest. See, the issue is his wife. She's spending. The devil loves to distract us from the issues. And that is one of the lessons that you learn on the way to the desert. Keep your mind focused on the issue. Keep your heart focused on the issue. If you are doing God's work in God's way and God's will for God's glory, you are not the issue. God is the issue. And, and Elijah runs all the way down. I have driven from Mount Carmel to Beersheba. 
It's a long drive. I've often thought, how in the world did Elijah run that far? Fear generates energy and burns fat. Did you know that? It was driving him on. I don't know how he ran all the way to Beersheba, left his servant there, and then went another day down into the wilderness. But it happened because he was distracted from the issue. The fourth way Satan reveals himself is he destroys confidence. And there he is in verse 4, a day's journey into the wilderness. And here is this great, powerful, strong man. A man of intense character sitting under a broom tree. And he is saying, Lord, it is enough. Take my life. For I don't deserve to live any longer. I'm no better than my father. Now here's the fourth thing that you learn on the way to the desert from Satan. This is a revelation of his character. He destroys confidence. He destroys confidence. When he has distorted the truth and disseminated fear and he is distracted from the issue, then he destroys your confidence. God will never use me again. My ministry is done. My life is over. I didn't make the, the cheerleading team. I'm never going out for it again. I didn't make the football team. I'm never going out for it again. I tried out for that solo in the choir and Larry didn't give it to me and therefore I'm never singing again. I volunteered for a Sunday school class and they didn't use me because I didn't study my lesson and I missed seven straight weeks in a row and never told anybody to get a substitute and uh, I'm done. I'll never do it again. Whenever confidence is destroyed, that is always a revelation of the involvement of Satan in your life. God builds. Satan destroys. God edifies. Satan distracts. God multiplies. Satan subtracts. Life lived in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, is always an ebullient life. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine or drugs. The, the wine may make you feel up for a while. But ultimately, it is only the spirit that can keep you up. A drunken life is a debilitating life. Life lived in the spirit is an invigorating life. I looked at some of you this morning, and you need a little shot of the spirit. Somebody brought me an article and said that red wine is good for the heart. Said that's what I ought to be drinking is red wine. Listen, everything about God, everything about the Spirit is encouraging. It's uplifting. It's edifying. It's building. Life in the Spirit is a happy life. And if a man thinks he's happier in a bar, it's only temporary, folks. It won't last forever. The life of a drunkenness leads you to debilitation and leads you to loneliness. Life in the Spirit leads you to, to joy and happiness and godly company. And so the devil has made his mark on Elijah's life and destroyed his confidence. Now, as you examine this passage, you see that there are three things that Elijah suffers. He suffers, first, he suffers a, an exhaustion. He is absolutely exhaustion, exhausted. Now, usually in a period of discouragement, we go through this time, exhaustion is a loss of strength. He simply did not have the strength to go on. But he also suffers from frustration. Discouragement is accompanied by frustration. 
And that is a loss of answers. He did not know what to do about Jezebel. And discouragement is accompanied by despair, which is a loss of hope. When you lose strength, you lose answers, and you lose hope, you are in discouragement. And that is the way Satan reveals himself in a circumstance. When those three things are present, you know that Satan is there. God is a God of hope. God is a God of answers. When you come to its end corner, God is a God of strength. He will energize you in the spirit. So now the whole story turns because Satan has revealed himself on the way to the desert. Now he's in the desert and it's there in the desert that God reveals himself to Elijah also in four ways. Now watch verse five. As he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. He looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great. And he arose and ate and drank and went for 40 days in the strength of that food. Now here's the first way God always reveals himself to us. God reveals himself in an accommodation of strength. How he does it, sometimes it may be by food. Sometimes he does it with money. Sometimes he does it with an opportunity. But God always accommodates us with strength in the middle of the desert when we're discouraged and there's nowhere to go. By the way, when God had called Elijah, the very first thing he did was to send him down by the brook, the brook Kareth. And there he fed Elijah by the what? Who remembers what it was? By the ravens. And he stayed by the brook and God fed him. He should have known God will always meet his need. God sent an angel to touch him. And he said, arise, here's some water, here's some food. Listen, you can only go so far in your own strength. You can only go so far with your own provision. You can only go so far with what you have. And when you come to the end of yourself, that is when God reaches down and touches you. And God reveals himself always in an accommodation of strength. Whether you're dealing with grief or whether you're dealing with pain or whether you're dealing with misunderstanding. I love to eat. Don't you like to eat? We flew up to Iowa. Alf Alsher's father died last Sunday morning and he's been up there all week in Iowa. And we flew up there on Friday morning. And uh, Rick Reed and Larry White and Kid Oviatt and John Budd and I went up and uh, uh, after we got up to about 24,000 feet, Rick breaks out this little Tupperware box. And inside that little Tupperware box, Suzanne had made some pumpkin rolls and bran rolls. Now, most bran rolls that I've eaten tasted like cardboard. Have you ever had a bran roll that you'd eaten and you said, yuck, if I got to live on these the rest of my life, I'm done I'm under a broom tree. It's enough, Lord. 
you've taken away all my bran rolls, good bran Well, I want to tell you, when I tasted that pumpkin roll, when I tasted those bran rolls, they were absolutely out of this world, weren't they, Larry? I mean, it, better than anything we could have bought anywhere along the line. Fantastic. Just what we needed at just the right time for a long flight way up in Iowa. Bran rolls and pup never tasted so good. Suzanne, I just want to send you a little signal. First, I want to say thanks, and then I say keep them coming. Amen? <laughs> and the Bible says that the second time when the angel touched him, that he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. Now, it's really curious to me. 40 is the number of temptation. How many days was it Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Do you remember? And for 40 days, God had proved that he was totally adequate, totally sufficient. 40 days, and he wound up at Horeb as God was strengthening him to get him ready for another revelation of himself. That's the first way God, God speaks to us. He always accommodates us with strength in the desert. Secondly, there's the appearance of his presence, beginning in verse 9. There Elijah went into a cave. The language of the Hebrew is a familiar language as if you, he might have been saying, and it could be interpreted, translated, he went into the cave. And as I studied that, I wondered, could it have been the cleft of the rock, the same rock where Moses was hidden from the presence of the Lord? Elijah went into that cave, and as he sat in that cave, God revealed his presence. He said, God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Has God ever asked you that? Has God ever said that to you in the desert? What are you doing here? Why are you here? Why are you discouraged? Why have you given up on me? Why have you, have you turned to doubt rather than fear? And Elijah said, well, Lord, I've been worrying myself out serving you. Not a good excuse, by the way. I used to say I'd rather burn out than rust out. But I'm telling you, folks, there is some spiritual WD-40, so you don't have to do either one. Amen? We need to learn that, some of us workaholics. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Oh, Lord, nobody's worked for you like I've worked for you. The children of Israel forsook your covenant. They did. Torn down your altars. They did. Killed your prophets with the sword. They did. And I alone am left. Poor me. There's nobody but me. I'm the only one standing for truth. I'm the only one you can count on God. I'm the only one who... Did you ever feel like that? Did you ever feel like the whole world rested on your shoulders? You hear me say this once in a while, but folks, I used to try to solve everybody's problem. I have resigned as emperor of the world. I cannot take everybody's problem on me. I cannot solve every marriage. I cannot solve every difficulty. I cannot solve everything. And neither can you. And one of the great revelations of God in our lives is the revelation that God is sovereign. And when he's ready to solve that problem, he'll solve it in his way and his time. And he can do it with or without you. And it's not your solution that'll do it. It's God's. You're just cooperating with him. Amen. Some of you right now have lost sleep for the last four nights because you cannot solve the problem of your children. 
And poor old Elijah says, I'm alone. I'm the only one. It's all on me. Oh, no, God says, it's not all on you, Elijah. And God revealed himself. But now watch the story, verse 11. He said, go out and stand in the mountain before the Lord, just like Elijah. Just, I mean, Elijah, just like Moses. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But now read the next phrase. But the Lord was not in the wind. It wasn't in the super spectacular that God revealed himself. And after the wind, the earth shook. The rocks were split. And there was an earthquake. And the narrator makes it clear. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake came a fire, huge consuming ball of fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, when all the spectacular had died down, there was a whisper. There was a whisper from outside the cave. And there was a still small voice, but the Hebrew word is whisper. Whisper. God said, Elijah, you didn't see me in the wind. You didn't see me in the earthquake. You didn't see me in the fire. Step out here just a moment. And verse 13 says, so it was when Elijah heard the whisper that he wrapped his face in a mantle as if he knew God was going to reveal now his holiness and his person and his character. Remember, when, when Moses had come from Horeb in the presence of God, the glory of God was shining off his face to such a degree that the people couldn't even stand in Moses' presence and he had to veil his face. That's why I think this is the same cave. That's why I think Elijah said, uh-oh, God's about to do something. The Bible says he took his mantle and put it over his head because he realized he was standing in the presence of the sovereign, powerful God. And the scripture goes on to say that he stood in the entrance of the cave and God asked him again, what are you doing here? God is helping him identify the reasons for his discouragement. But here is this marvelous appearance of the presence of God. The third way God reveals himself is found beginning in verse 15. And he said, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria, anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel, and Elisha, Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, and you shall anoint as prophet him as prophet in your place. And it shall be whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Yehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha will kill. I'll take care of it. Now, here's the third way God always reveals himself in discouragement. An appointment for action. First, an accommodation of strength, an appearance of his presence, and an appointment for action. Here is a plan of action. Get up and take action. When you're discouraged, God says, do something. When you're discouraged, God says, take a step. Take action to reconcile. Take action to solve the problem. Use the energy of your discouragement or your fear to solve the problem. Don't just sit there and feel sorry for yourself, Elijah. Get up. God always has a plan of action. In Genesis chapter 4, when God had rejected the 
offering of the ground, the fruit of the ground of, of Cain. And Cain was discouraged. And the Bible says that his countenance was downfallen. God looked at him and said, sir, if you do well, you shall be accepted. Your countenance will be brightened and you'll be encouraged. Go back and do what you're supposed to do. God always has a plan of counsel, a plan of action for the discouraged. Take action. Get up and do something. And for Elijah, it was go back over the same route you came. Return on your way and anoint Hazel and anoint Yehu and anoint Elisha. Take some action. When I get discouraged, one of the greatest things I can do is go out and start doing something profitable. I always feel better. That's why I like to paint. Paint, you can see some results from what you're doing. There's some things you work forever and you never see any results. I love to paint. Paint anything, anybody. Because you can see some results right away. Amen? I love to paint. And uh, sometimes spiritually, when I get discouraged, just do something. Go out and knock on doors. Go out and find a set of houses. Knock on the doors. Tell people about Jesus. It's amazing how soul winning treats your heart. It's amazing. They that sow in tears shall reap in what? You know, one thing that means is if you go witnessing when you're discouraged, you're going to come back rejoicing. Amen? That's one thing I believe it means. And you're discouraged in the Christian life. Join the choir. You're discouraged in the Christian life. Teach RAs. You got some room yet, Larry? <laughs> you're discouraged in the Christian life. Do something. Take God's action. And fourth, God reveals himself in verse 18 in the association of the godly. When you're discouraged and you want to be all alone and you want to be isolated, you don't want to talk to anybody, that's when you need the fellowship. Come to church. Get with the people of God. Get a body of people around you. Pray. Get your friends together. Have a pajama party. No, I mean, that's if you're young. Uh, do something. Get, get your friends around you. God said to Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. You are not by yourself. Get back and take the action I have appointed and you'll see that there are 7,000 godly people standing with you whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. The association of the godly invigorates us. It moves us on. It gets us out of that discouragement. It does something. It begins to change us. I thought of you this morning when I watched you come in. Some of you came in and you looked like the end of the world. I don't know whether you're sad because you couldn't go to Honolulu for the holidays. Or I don't know, you're sad because you, you, you don't have a $2 million house down on the beach. Or I don't know what's wrong, but, but you came in looking horrible this morning. Just discouraged like, oh my, I got a holiday tomorrow. Got to do something. <laughs> And God says, get with the godly. I've got 7,000. Go associate with them. You're not by yourself. It's never good for man to be alone too long. All of us like to get alone for a while. But don't stay there long. That's when discouragement turns into depression. Get with the people of God. That's why God called us together. That's why God gave us to each other. Now, I want to make, I want to make a main point here, though. Too many of us, like Elijah have got the Big Bang Theory about God. And the Big Bang Theory of God has exploded right here. God does not always send fire from heaven. God does not always send an earthquake. God is not always in the fire. 
God is not always in the wind. Most of us want 11 miracles by 12 noon or else God is dead. Most of us want something. God owes us something. Most of us want the big bang. Lord, give it to me. I've got a problem. I need $188,000. Good. And an anonymous check comes in the U.S. mail the next day. We want God to instantly solve all of our problems. That's the big bang theory of God. God, do it now and do it fast. And Lord, you owe it to me. And most of the time, God isn't in the wind. He can do that anytime he wants. But most of the time, God isn't in the earthquake. He can send that anytime he wants. And most of the time, God isn't in the fire. I've had a few occasions in my life where God did something so spectacular, it was such a big bang, it just blew me out of the water. And I said, thank you, Lord. Man, that's fantastic. But we, we humans have a tendency to make our experience the norm. And once God does something great for us, then we expect it the next time and the next time and the next time and the next time. And Elijah learned that sometimes God just reveals himself in the still, small whisper. The whisper. The whisper. When are we going to have revival, somebody says. Friends, we're in revival. Most of us think the only way you can have revival is if you have this great big shout meeting and we have a five-hour meeting, everybody gets hungry and nobody worries about it, and we have this great meeting. Listen, revival comes in different ways. I'm not sure many of us would know it if we saw it, if we stared it right in the face. When you have the kind of things going on that have been going on around this church, people have long-standing disagreements and they've made peace. People have long-standing enmity and they've made peace. We don't stand up and announce it every week. Say, we want you to know that David Dawson settled his disagreement with Chuck Peters and they hugged each other in the balcony and everything's fine and we're having revival. But it's going on. And we walk around here like God is dead and God has forgotten us and there is no revival. And it may be we're experiencing it and we don't even know it because we want an earthquake. And God gives us a small, a small voice. When you're in this church and God is doing what he's doing, you're in revival. Do you know how dead the nation of Wales was before the revival came, it is nothing like what's going on in America. So when that revival came, it was such a big bang. It was so stupendous. Everybody wrote about it. But we're experiencing a measure of revival right along. And so the big bang won't make as big a bang when a big bang bangs. <laughs> we got a problem with our child and we want a big bang solution, Lord. I want you to zap him, take away all the desire for cocaine, straighten out his personality, take away all the ways that he's like his dad, all the ways he's like his mom, straighten out his genes, do something to his DNA, and then touch his heart, and it's all solved. Amen. Boy, my son's a perfect son. Rarely does God give us a big bang solution to everything. It comes in the still small voice. It's not in the wind. It's not in the earthquake. It's not in the fire. But God is speaking. Somebody said to me the other day, I, nothing's happened at Calvary. There's just nothing going on. God's not doing anything. Man, I don't know what church he's going to, but he's not going here. His body might be here. Her body might be here, but he's not here. Amen? Sometimes it's in the still, small voice. Don't try to shape God into your version of the Big Bang God. 
Take what he gives you from his word, what he gives you from worship, what he gives you through friends and accept it and praise God for it and go right on with God's revelation of himself. In the appointment for action, God reveals his wisdom. In, in, in the, the accompaniment of godly friends, God reveals that he is a God of fellowship. He keeps revealing himself to us in all these ways. Some of you are discouraged this morning. You're ready to throw in the towel. You're in the desert right now. You've been in the desert all week. Some of you have never been saved. You never really surrendered your life to God. You're in the desert. And God wants to speak to you in the still small voice. Some of you have been waiting on the big bang. God says, I don't have any big bang for you. But I got a voice. I got a word of encouragement. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward and acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He's been through everything Elijah went through, and he came out victorious. He went to the cross and died to pay for your sins so you don't have to die. In a moment, I want to offer you an opportunity to come and find help and encouragement where you're discouraged. Some of you are members of another church. You've been visiting here a long time. You need to seal your commitment and be a part of this congregation. So I want to go to work for God here. I want you to stand in prayer as we pray. Father, speak to every one of us. And let us hear your still, small voice. And forgive us when we expect the great, big bang. But if you want to send it, Lord, it's all right. But remind us that often you speak in our desert experience in the still, small voice. In Jesus' name.